This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the final session um, for the 2019 Convention. Thanks very much for joining us. And before we get going, just a reminder that the Linger Longer reception takes place straight after this session in the ballroom foyer. Please join us for drinks and snacks. And one more thing is that uh, somebody did leave a cell phone behind. It does have a driver's license at the back. It says G-Tenic. You can um, collect it from me after the session. I'm not too sure who that is, but they're not on the app, whoever it is. <laughs> so they won't be missing their phone much in terms of getting through, through everything. Okay, so our next speaker is Rapelang Rabana. Um, she has a Wikipedia page, so she's just that much of a skoko, you know. <laughs> Rapelang is an internationally lauded technolo technology entrepreneur. She has been featured on the cover of Forbes Africa magazine before the age of 30, selected as a fast company maverick, named Entrepreneur of the, for the World by the World Entrepreneurship Forum and also selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. From her first startup, Yego, straight out of university, to the chief digital officer at one of South Africa's largest IT companies, Rapelang has amassed over 13 years' experience building tech. She is currently the founder and chair of Rekindle Learning, a dynamic learning tech company providing smart learning applications that improve learning outcomes. A really warm welcome to you, Rapelang. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be with you. It's always wonderful when Karavo introduces me because she was the deputy head girl when I was in high school, so I always feel like I'm back at school again, <laughs> and I hope, <laughs> I hope I don't disappoint her. Um, I remember a whole lot of my friends that were studying actuarial science at varsity were a lot smarter than me, so I'm really intimidated by this audience, and I hope I can try and um, catch up to where you guys are at. I'm going to be chatting to you about education and learning, which is really one of my deep, deep passions and interests. Um, and I'm calling it sort of re-education because I'm looking at a different way of approaching it. Obviously, in our economy and for any country's um, growth and prosperity, how you leverage human capital, develop skills, capacitate people is a huge, huge contributor to the potential success. And we've seen what um, maximizing human capital has done for countries like Singapore um, that had no natural resources. And I feel that unless we as a continent really relook really at how we dramatically change, how we build skills, how we capacitate people going forward into the future, we're not really ever going to reach that potential. So I'm not really a teacher. I come from a tech background, but I've been in this sort of space for the last five years um, with my company in Rekindle Learning. Um, and my inspiration that's sort of drawn me to this industry um, is, is, is my own family. Um, so these young people on the screen um, are my parents. And when I look at them, I see people that won the sort of life lottery, really, really beat the odds um, to break out of poverty. And when I look at them and compare them to the, some of their siblings and relatives, I really get dumbfounded at how staggering the life outcomes can be. And this is what really drew me on how we can be more systematic in how we develop people's potential so that it isn't this lottery. 
Um, and it isn't this lucky chance for those who make it through and, and those who don't. Um, and my sort of starting premise that I'm going to keep referring to throughout this talk is that what I think really needs to shift is that the what of learning, which is the content that we consume, isn't so much the determinant of success as to the how of learning and the how of teaching. And to a large extent, most of everything that we're doing, whether it's in education systems and in corporate training, really speaks to the what. And we've, to a large extent, um, ignored the how, which actually delivers some of the greater outcomes. Um, so when I talk about the what, I'm really talking about the fact that you go through these sort of 12 years of, of, of school um, and get into sort of university and do more corporate training. And the idea is that you spend all this time acquiring a discipline-specific skill set, perhaps as a project manager, to be able to do work in the next 10, 20, 30 years in that space on the assumption that that content primarily will carry you. And it's a 100-year sort of old-year system, and it worked for a long time. But in the times we live in now, um, we need to question whether it's that sort of still working. The half-life of content is reducing dramatically. Even for four, when you're doing a four-year degree, by the time you finish, you're still questioning whether the relevance of that first-year content um, is going to actually be impactful in your career. You're still wondering when the job, whether the job that you studied for actually still exists. Um, and I was listening on the radio coming in and all the... Um, colleges and varsities talking about how we need to develop for people or jobs that don't sort of exist yet. Given that um, the content is changing so much, is it still a viable strategy to educate on the basis of content? Um, and even when people qualify for a degree um, in our economy, they may not even get a job in that particular category, right? And it's like selling movie tickets to a show that's sold out. And this sort of way that we've done stuff worked in a time where life was relatively linear. You could do this linear progression of sort of how you studied because your career was relatively predictable and linear. But it doesn't quite make sense in a time where our careers are almost spiderwebs and it's much less predictable what the outcome would be. I try to imagine perhaps this worked in previous industrial revolutions because we had lots of time to adjust as things changed. Um, I kind of estimated how much time would you have had to adjust with each industrial revolution, um, but basically it was a lot more time. Um, 100 years at some point, maybe 20 years, but now with this sort of changes of automation, the fourth industrial revolution, I don't think that we have as much adjustment time to be able to reshape our education systems, our learning programs, to equip people with the things that they need to know. And it is these sort of questions that have really led me to continue sort of the research um, that I'm doing on sort of rekindled learning and in the future on how we respond. And the stats, even in the corporate environment, are quite staggering in terms of us not being able to cope with these adjustment periods. Some of the recent stats out of the um, Deloitte survey where they looked at about, I think they surveyed about 10,000 people, um, leadership across various countries in the world, and they picked up a lot of stats around what's not really working. Um, you know, 86% of respondents believe that they need to reinvent their ability to learn. 86% rated the need to improve learning and development um, as highly critical for their business. 
80% believe that they need to develop leaders differently um, and the like. We've seen that many companies are no longer valuing the degree um, that people came, come in with. Um, have actually excluded that from their recruitment requirements. It's all indications that we're no longer able to provide an, a strong enough indication of ability and performance. I know you've all hired people that had great CVs, had a great degree on paper, and come to the real work life. The results aren't manifesting, and we're all sort of left confused as to how that really happens. Um, we've tried to use more psychometrics and behavioral stuff to try to get a better sense of what actually makes a person perform? How do we better tell that they can adapt? There's other consequences. Um, the emotional and psychological implications are of this lack of adjustment, of people struggling to cope with work, um, and the changes is also quite manifest, especially in the healthcare sector, as I'm sure you guys have seen already. Um, other than the mental and emotional costs, it's taking so long to fill sort of vacancies in companies. Um, and sort of deep loss of satisfaction in work. Um, I liked this interesting term of the rise of road warriors. They're called retired on active duty. People that um, are not functional, really adding value in the organization, but can't be fired for various reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, it was quite a fun term, that. So all of this is really saying that our content-driven approaches to learning aren't performing, aren't delivering us the results that we need um, in our companies and in our economy. Um, and what can we sort of start to do differently or think differently? Um, and what this speaks to me um, and what it says is that we need to perhaps look at something different than the content that someone is given. Because we know that we can give someone great nursing content but do they become a great nurse? There's actually very little correlation to that. And this is where it comes back to sort of that how, um, as opposed to the what of learning. And what would that mean if we try to unpack what does the how of learning mean? That speaks much more to experiences, to overcoming struggles, to overcoming challenges, to life exposure. Those are the hows of learning that are far less prescribed in your unit standards and um, any training programs. And it's often a matter of luck when you have a how that learning experience that is actually great based on your coach or your teacher or the manager that you might have. Um, and looking at this how is where I believe we can start to build the mindsets and behaviors that we actually desire because that is actually the big gap between someone who has a degree and someone sort of who would perform isn't the content that they sort of mastered, but the behaviors, mindsets, and values they built in that gap. And how do we then begin to think, how can we consistently figure out how do you build mindsets, behaviors, and values? And this is the how piece um, that I'm coming to. We know that filling the brain with content isn't going to work. Um, the World Economic Forum says that 54% of people today will have to spend their time reskilling um, every so often. And instead of trying to keep up with just giving people enough content, I'm thinking that we need to look at the deeper underlying capabilities <clears throat> of people that would help us understand how would they keep adapting in this time of change. How do we figure out what would enable someone to learn, unlearn, and relearn? 
what are some of those functions, human functions, that actually allow for that level of adaptability? And think about how do we systematically develop for that as opposed to focusing a whole lot more on the content like we've been doing sort of so far. Um, the World Economic Forum did sort of list a whole lot of skills that are required um, between 2015 and 2020, and the big changes. We saw creativity, critical thinking, problem solving sort of going up there. But I asked myself, what's it going to be five years after that? And the five years after that, um, it still speaks says to me that we need to look deeper than that. How do we empower people to be able to keep responding and changing? Um, and I'm really directing the thoughts to how do we define a different type of intelligence that actually gives us that responsiveness and adaptability. Um, because these skills are also not going to be enough in another five years' time when we decide that we need something else in companies. This is an important transition, I think, in how we consider how we develop people, because in previous industrial revolutions, um, we could rely on or how do we say, we didn't need to empower sort of, or think about how we develop the brain as much as we do now. We didn't need to think about that in order how to think about how we empowered the man. We either dangled a carrot or we had a stick to motivate them to do something. And if that didn't work, we'd replace them because um, they were as easily replaceable by somebody else. And in these times, those options are not as viable. And the man, understanding how you drive um, one's brains and, and capacity to produce work is even more critical now. So I think that way back when, I can't remember when this guy was alive, Charles Darwin, um, but he said that it is not the strongest species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the most responsive to change. So I think he you know, prophesied these times when we would need to reframe how we assess performance ability um, and perhaps intelligence into this kind of concept of responsiveness. Um, given that what we really want out of people is that they should be able to perform a task well um, and deliver the result, whether it's writing that report, doing that presentation, raising a child, being a husband or wife, whatever the task is, what we're really asking is whether people can continuously adapt and respond to the task or challenge that arises. And that's what actually gives us the performance that we want. And that's what gives us the business agility that we're looking for. So if that's what we really, really want, shouldn't we be trying to unpack what that concept actually means? What would responsiveness as an intelligence look like? What would it mean? How would we begin to measure for it, develop for it? Um, so that we can more systematically figure out how we get people to the levels of performance that we really, really want. Um, and luckily, there has been some good research around this concept. And in the space of adult development theory, in terms of how we could begin to unpack these dimensions of responsiveness that would contribute ultimately to whatever the skills that we need of today are, whether it's that critical thinking or creativity and the like. So in the research and thinking that I've been doing, I sort of come down to these sort of four dimensions that I'm going to unpack with you today and try to explain how these would contribute to that concept of responsiveness, how they would ultimately enable capabilities like creativity and critical thinking and problem solving. 
with the idea that if we can begin to rethink and come up with a different scale um, for looking at responsiveness as a, as a type of intelligence, we can relook at how we educate and train people sort of going forward. So the four things that I'll look at is something called task competence, locus of control, whole brain function, um, and consciousness. Um, so let me start breaking down some of those. Task competence is probably the simplest one to start with. So let me, let me start there. Task competence is really just speaks to how well you can independently perform a task. And it's based on what many of us probably have heard before around the four stages of, comp of competence, where one starts from unconscious incompetence, and then you become conscious of your competence, and then you become consciously competent, and then you become so, so good, you are unconsciously competent. And the key thing here is that for someone to get to that level of sort of brilliance, they need to travel through those stages, um, and often that depends on how well you understand the task, how well you know how to break it down, how well you understand the risks, um, how well you can mitigate against those risks. Um, and these are, it sounds like a trivial thing, but I'm sure many of you in your work or life environment know people that can't quite seem to get to the end of a task, right? They have the time, they have the briefing, but somehow, they can't figure out how to break it down, they can't figure out how to get to the end task, or they can't do it on time, over and over again. Um, and this is a key function um, around this responsiveness that I'll keep talking about. So it really speaks about your ability to focus on the right step in performing a task. And I'm using the word task generally here. Again, it could be doing a report, doing a presentation, how well you raise your child, all of those kinds of things. Whole brain function um, speaks to a concept that Daniel Pink wrote about over 10 years ago in his book, A Whole New Mind, where he talked about how the typical left brain analysis memorization that we're taught in our education system is going to make us less relevant, um, and we needed to develop whole brain function. So the way I understand it now that I explain it to you is that when we talk about whole brain function is that we've got analysis and synthesis functions in our brain. Um, analysis functions are the functions that break down a concept, break it down into steps and sequence for you to be able to understand it um, and fix something. Your synthesis functions are the functions that look at the big picture, that ask your purpose, the why, um, how do we get um, the greatest impact, what do we focus on to get 80% of the result, those kind of questions. So your analysis function asks, am I doing the task right? Your synthesis function asks, am I doing the right task? So am I doing the task right versus am I doing the right task? I mean, to be able to perform in today's world, you actually need to be able to, to do both, to zoom into detail and to zoom out into the bigger picture. It's how you're able to problem solve, how you're able to think critically, how you're able to become more creative. Um, and even when we think about sort of leadership and communication skills, it's also critical there, because if you 
engage and relate to people primarily through your analytical function only, you tend to be sort of zoned in on the detail and overly critical and can't see sort of people holistically in order to have a meaningful sort of connection with them. Um, so these are sort of critical functions around this sort of whole brain performance um, that we also need to look at um, because I think it's the foundation of so many of these 21st century skills um, that we're looking for. Locus of control speaks to how you think life is influenced. So if you have an internalized locus of control, you generally believe that you've got a direct influence over how your life pans out and influence on how you spend your time, how you invest your energy. And if you have an externalized locus of control, you're operating from a place where um, you generally think life is happening to you, um, and to a large extent, you're not able to influence your life outcomes, um, how you spend your time, um, and things like that. And it all affects how accountable we are to ourselves um, and to the people around us. Um, and you're, you, you ultimately, of course, want to operate at an internalized locus of control, because if you think about it, if you can't self-govern, you can't lead others, you can't um, manage other people, particularly well if you have operating from an externalized locus of control. And you actually do need to be in that internalized space to be able to have the influence and impact um, that you might be wanting to have. Consciousness um, speaks to the things that motivate us. Depending on our stage in life, we're all motivated to do things um, for different reasons. It could be about safety, financial reward, belonging, being the best, autonomy, um, finding meaning, making a difference, serving others, um, doing good. And at any given point, depending on our level of consciousness, we will focus on a certain outcome. And when we look at the sort of demands today for leadership that delivers not just financial results, but social and environmental results that are positive for the society in general, we're really asking for different levels of consciousness um, that can deliver beyond what we were sort of looking at before and the motivations we were looking at before. So I've thrown all of these random concepts and there's actually an organization in South Africa that has pulled these things together to begin to develop a scale of responsiveness that allows us to see where one is at in these different dimensions with the idea being that if we can assess where we can, if we can measure where someone is at a certain point and we better understand how we tip and develop people into different stages, we can ultimately develop these underlying capabilities much more effectively. Um, so it's almost like a competency architecture of sorts. Um, and the idea is that you start on the A side of the scale um, and you get to the highly competent B side of the scale. And I'm going to give you an example of how that would actually relate to a simple task of um, riding a bicycle so that it can make a little bit of sense. Again, it could be any task, but the idea is that we're relating to tasks now in a form of responsiveness and to try and understand how that relates to underlying functions in our brain. So if we look at the example of riding a bicycle, at, and there are multiple stages, I'm just showing you a snippet of five, and there's multiple subsets in those five, but for simplicity, I'm just giving you sort of those five. And at A1, it's a stage where someone is unconsciously incompetent, 
Um, and in the case where they're learning how to ride a bicycle, they generally won't be able to sit or hold the bicycle. They don't have any knowledge of how the bike works or how it would move. And they may well not be aware of their incompetence until they actually attempt to do something with the bike and something, nothing happens. Um, and essentially, that moment, that aha moment, where they see they're incompetent is what would usher them into sort of the next stage of A2, where they now see the gap, um, they still don't know what to do, so they sort of, someone needs to push the bike for them, perhaps they need to ride on the back of that person um, so that they can get the feeling of how the bike works, um, they need a lot of encouragement, someone needs to show them what the end result looks like, a lot of positivity, they will fall and trip many times, and it's critical at this point to have that supportive environment so that they don't become, develop defensive um, behaviors to protect their own sort of ego. Um, in step three, or A3, is where someone is actually now competent in doing that task or riding that bike, and they can do it on their own without training wheels, without, sort of a, without assistance. Um, and they can now observe somebody else doing a certain movement or trick on a bike and copy and continuously improve themselves by however they're stimulated in that environment. So they are now sort of independent, but they're still operating within a defined structure um, and a defined um, supportive environment, and they couldn't necessarily go do this in anywhere else sort of independently. The independent stage sort of starts with the B1 level, where this is now the point where um, they start to develop their sort of own leadership capabilities and skills. Um, and this is the point where they are self-disciplined, self-managed, and they can decide what games or what activities they want to do on the bike. They can begin to manage other people, coach other people to learn how to ride the bike. Um, they become a lot more, slightly more competitive. They can motivate people, um, start to bring in sort of the team sort of element. Um, in the B2 stage, they now much more highly ambitious, um, much more competitive, persistent, persevering, the kind of person that can go off on their own where there isn't a supporting environment, where there isn't an existing structure and start everything sort of themselves. They can display originality. Um, they operate very well under stress. Um, they've got high self-expectations um, and the like. So that just gives you sort of a quick snippet of what to scale in responsiveness would mean. And the idea with this A to B sort of approach is to say, couldn't, wouldn't it be powerful if we understood what, by observing people, by asking questions, which stage they are at in respect to a particular task, and if we learned sort of the underlying principles of how you coach someone at an A2, at a B1, at an A3, wouldn't we be much better in cultivating the kind of um, experience or challenge that they need to undertake next so that they can develop to a higher level of responsiveness? Um, the other idea with this is that when you want to sort of tip people from one stage to the other, um, it's all about learning how to create the right sort of stimulus or challenge um, so that they can actually have those aha moments that move them to the next step. So 
again, the whole sort of scale to give you a quick snippet of how sort of it links up. And just to point out stuff that stuff like locus of control would develop from an externalized to an internalized sort of um, thing from A to B. Your whole brain function will develop from your one sort of your, your either analytical or synthesis dominated brain function to a whole brain function when you sort of get to the B, B level. Um, and this is really important because I started to get more and more intrigued as I sort of looked at the people I work with and my team to try and understand sort of where they get stuck. Um, and when you look at sort of an A3 level, you've got a highly competent manager who can do things, but um, that's not actually the final sort of stage of development and you need to be able to push them to the next B1 level to become sort of that leadership. And that's actually one of the big things we need to be able to learn how to do um, in, in large organizations and companies. Because at that B1 level is really what we're looking for when we say that we don't have enough leadership or managers sort of in the country. Um, how do we learn how to systematically sort of develop people in that direction? Um, the, the scale also looks at what happens when you get stuck. So we can develop maladaptive behaviors when we get stuck in a certain stage for too long um, because we are human beings that need to optimally develop to our highest potential. Um, and when we develop these maladaptive behaviors, they manifest as limiting belief systems, as um, victim mindset, as anxiety, as narcissism, all these things that we need to do to cope with um, the fact that we feel stuck and are not entirely sure sort of what is happening to us at that point in time. Um, and part of the, the work that they do at A2B is also the kind of assessments where one can unpack what your maladaptive behaviors that you've developed are that are almost blocking you um, in developing sort of into the next stages of, of that development. So I hope that gives you a snippet of a completely different view of how we could begin to unpack performance and, and function um, within people by looking at this concept of responsiveness and trying to unpack the deeper underlying functions there. The idea here is that regardless of the task or function, um, and if I give you an example, like to be an amazing event coordinator, um, you would need to be able to deeply understand the task, which speaks to the task competence. You would need to be able to perform at a highly detailed level and at a highly um, strategic level, which is your whole brain function. Um, you would need to be able to appreciate um, the, the end user and who you're truly serving, um, which speaks to sort of your, your consciousness. You would need to be able to believe that you can affect the outcome and influence all the variables around, which is your locus of control. Um, and the same example could be applied to many, many job functions, um, which is why I think it sort of speaks to how we ultimately get to, to performance. Um, so if you indulge me and we assume that this concept of responsiveness is the kind of intelligence that would work um, as a different type of intelligence um, that we need in our organizations going forward, the question then be begins to be how do we develop it at scale? How do we cultivate this how of learning? How do we create those sort of experiences? And what do they sort of then begin to look like? In this sort of A to B methodology, um, it just points to sort of the neuroscience, which says that 
Learning actually happens when you have an out-of-comfort-zone experience and you experience an I-can moment and achieve sort of the successful outcome. So it's not too small that it's boring and disengaging and you withdraw from the process. And it's not too big that you are overwhelmed and you become defensive and come up with excuses as to why you can't do it. It's about pitching the just right experience, just outside your comfort zone. And when you have an I can moment, it's actually the only time you grow your neurology, when you grow your neural pathway and um, speak to that, the world of neuroplasticity. So just giving content, um, which is a lot of what our education system is based on, doesn't actually build neural pathways. And what you really want when you um, are a child that's sort of developing well is that you are, for the first 18 years of your life, constantly developing more and more neural pathways, which means that whether you're at school, your parents, your community, are you being exposed consistently over time to experiences that are just outside your comfort zone? And this could be anything, not just your schoolwork, but learning how to ride that bicycle, or learning how to swim, or traveling outside of your country. All these experiences, if you are lucky and live an incredibly well-stimulated childhood, will get you to a point where when you are 18, 20, you have a well-developed higher brain, um, higher cortex. And that's actually what builds your capacity for responsiveness. So the more I learned about this, the more and more I got concerned about how many young people in our country live in deeply sort of understimulating environments and, and what that would sort of mean for them. The other key things that you need to think about in developing ICANN moments um, is sort of the environment. Um, and the key part of what the, the research speaks to is about that supportive, open, transparent environment where people are empowered with information, where the psychological safety to speak, to ask questions, to try things, it's low anxiety. Um, the kind of environment where there's equity of communication, authentic connection, um, and all-round positive, let's try something together kind of environment. And many school environments, many work environments are often not like that. Uh, and if we're thinking that we are developing people to be ready for the fourth industrial revolution, to be ready for the times that we're living in, we also need to start looking at whether the environments of work that we have are conducive to supporting people's constant ex growth through experiences. Um, the other big thing um, is that for these young people then that are not getting the exposure and stimulus in those first 18 years and are trying to get into university and trying to get into work, how do we begin to think about how we close that gap of, of limited ICANN moments, of limited out-of-comfort-zone experiences that grew their neural pathways and grew their neurology. It, it can be from simple things. Maybe it's a child who didn't sit around the dinner table with their parents every evening, hearing about what they did and the challenges they encountered and how they overcame them. It's, it's the kid who doesn't have the, the cousin or the uncle who's um, run a business or is a leader in a business um, and doesn't get to hear about and, and experience or through them the kinds of things that, that they get exposed to. Um, it's, it's, it's that lack of, you know, 
life experience and life exposure? How do we begin to think about how we begin to close that gap of, of poor stimulation for such a long period of time, knowing that it contributes to your capacity sort of for responsiveness? Um, and this is where I started looking at could we use some of these fourth industrial revolution technologies to create those transformative experiences that um, progress people through those stages of that scale that you saw? Um, could we create, using these technologies, a way to leapfrog this gap or lack of quality life experiences that develop your neurology? Um, and perhaps the 4-hour isn't all doom and gloom. Um, and this is where... I've been spending quite a lot more time on how can we use the role, how can we use virtual reality driven by artificial intelligence to create artificial experiences to bridge some of those gaps. Um, and we, a lot of us will know that VR has probably been used for technical stuff like teaching someone how to drive. Now that Saudi Arabia has allowed women to start driving, they, you would imagine that there's actually no instructors to teach them. Um, since that they weren't allowed to work that closely with women. So they're using a lot of VR to teach technical skills like driving. Um, in mining, we've seen VR used for learning how to manage big machinery and stuff like that. Earlier this year, we've also seen a great deal more of how VR experiences are created to develop soft skills. Um, having a VR experience of, of your team meetings to learn how to engage, how to communicate with your team. There's a VR environment to help you learn how to fire someone, um, how to negotiate a contract. Yeah. Um, so these soft communication skills um, grew a lot of interest earlier this year and last year in the VR space. And what I'm particularly interested in now is could we create the kind of virtual reality experiences that work at these deeper underlying functions that I've spoken to in terms of responsiveness. Um, and these are more abstract experiences because they work on the conscious and the subconscious. Could we create these experiences that develop your locus of control, whole brain function, consciousness, task competence? Um, so it's a, a level deeper from technical to soft skills to I sum to these responsiveness capabilities, essentially. Um, and VR could be really powerful because, one, it's, it's a field of practice that um, provides unlimited access, right? And a lot of the time when you're developing mindsets or new behaviors or new ways to see the world, it's easy to get the initial aha moment to see how you've been doing something wrong, but to really change how you think and how you operate, you need repeated exposure, um, increasingly more complex and demanding, and it's just really hard for real life to give you that consistently. Um, and this is where gamification within VR can open up a whole new world, I think, on how we build some of these deeper functions. Um, Walmart has actually been using VR to retrain customer service staff around the U.S. Instead of bringing them into workshops, they are send goggles out to all the branches um, and using that kind of stuff there. And I'm imagining, could we come to a point where during your school day or your work day, you get your sort of 20-minute dosage um, 
of a VR experience that is working at your um, particular needs depending on how you've scored on a responsiveness scale like that and depending on where you need to get to in a certain amount of time so that you can get to that level of performance. Um, I think it gives us enormous potential to try and fill that gap through this practice field. Um, and it's not just a mechanism for development, but it's also a mechanism for assessment. You know, instead of the interview or the case study, if you really, really want to assess how well someone performs under a stressful condition in your work environment, we should be putting them in the VR environment too. Um, and it can give us a whole new way that is less biased and more neutral to actually truly assess performance without having to wait for real life to actually offer you the experience of, of seeing that. Um, it does require us to become different kinds of people and organizations where we really begin to recognize that um, we need to understand more how we create those just right experiences, those challenges, whether it's in a VR environment or in real life, so that we can develop people much more systematically um, in those capabilities of responsiveness. Um, so I hope it's given you some key things to stew on here and in your respective roles and organizations, um, do keep pondering on your work environment and whether it's providing people with the kind of environment to, to grow, to keep pushing themselves out of their comfort zone so that they can grow um, and be able to build their adaptability and responsiveness. Um, think about how whether if you are a parent or a coach um, or a leader in your organization, um, do you want to not learn more about how you create the challenges or experiences that actually push sort of your teams forward? Um, if you are in the sort of learning and training space, how do we as, as an industry begun, begin to rethink how we define sort of um, a learning outcome and performance, so it's not just what's defined sort of in the unit standards and the CETAs, but we're really more prescriptive about um, the experiences that accompany that learning so that we're assured that they deliver greater levels of responsiveness. So I hope it's given you a lot to think about. By no means is this the gospel. I'm really trying to seed um, a different way of thinking because I truly believe that the, the what of what we learn and the what of teaching is, is failing us considerably if we don't raise um, our understanding and knowledge of the how of learning, the how of teaching, which is where we build the mindsets, the behaviors, the values to give us the performance that we want. Um, and in learning that how of learning, could we not use this concept of responsiveness to progress our understanding of the kind of intelligence that we want in the future. Thank you very much. Uh, I was wondering if there's any questions for Rapalang on the floor. Uh, one thing which I was wondering about was uh, early mm. on today there was um, a session around how we can improve basic education mm. under the wider field space um, given the challenges that we've been having as you've articulated. And I was wondering to what extent the learning framework maybe has limits from an age perspective because 
One would expect that people on the BEU actually only really anticipating that it's maybe at our level, um, people mm. who are working. Is it the case that it might have some age limitations or how we think differently about that? Uh, or is it not? Is it quite open? Yeah. Sure. Um, I think the way you apply the responsiveness principles isn't age-specific at all. So even, in fact, you can start inculcating an internal or an externalized locus of control in a, in a young child by how you um, deal with them. So if you, know, you want them to clean up their toys or fix something and they don't do it when you tell them to and you incentivize them with a, with a sweet or you smack them or something, you're actually teaching their brain that for something to happen in their life, an external event has to trigger it, which is actually how you build an externalized locus of control. So you, the principles on how you build for responsiveness start at a very, very young age. And um, there's a lot of really powerful um, weekend workshops and um, courses that really sort of unpack some of these things. In terms of the South African sort of education system, um, when you read, and clearly I'm going to reveal how boring I am, when you read the SACWA framework and the NQF framework and stuff like that, they actually did have a section that talked about critical success factors. And that section did touch on some of these items of responsiveness that I spoke about. Um, and they are sitting somewhere in some learning unit standards um, in each of them, but very little is often understood around how well those are um, achieved when you sort of completing the courses in, in the SACWA framework because Again, I don't think we, while we've been very prescriptive around the detail of the content that must be delivered, we haven't been as clear on how you would create the experiences that would deliver the level of responsiveness that we require. And this is where I'm saying the gap is. The, some of the thinking was there, but we simply just haven't fleshed it out. We haven't put as much weight on the how as we have on sort of the what. So I think there's an angle to go in on to sort of reframe how we do things so that it's not just the great teacher in the elite school that happens to create the great learning experiences and does the how very well. I'm saying that if we don't define the how particularly well, it'll remain only within the elite schools because no one has been coached on how you create those just right experiences for young people to develop. Cool. Uh, I just want to check if there's any other questions. There's a question in front, if we could get a mic. Okay. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when it comes to learning, there are different time frames in terms of motivation. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, for example, if, if you don't have a good foundation in mathematics from very early stages, you know, grade one, grade two, it can spoil mathematics for your lifetime and you can't actually see ahead in terms of how that might affect you or even understand how it might affect you. Um, how, how do you in the short term get the, the, the motivation right so that people are able to see the long-term benefits of learning at an age where it's difficult to understand um, the, the, the implications of how it may apply to, to your life? Sure. Um, it's, it's a complex question. I'm going to try and answer it with some specific maybe examples of how we're doing it. I, I totally get what you're saying, um, that 
And what I'm really pointing out, I guess, in the talk is that if you look at when kids are really struggling with maths, you will also see that it's because they haven't had ICANN moments. Um, so they haven't, that, that coach hasn't positioned the just right task for them to have a progressively positive result so that they are willing to try again. And they've had so many negative results that they've now withdrawn from the process and adapted those maladaptive behaviors that I talked about in terms of limiting belief systems. So what I think we can do, um, and some of the work that we've, we've been doing so far is um, we do, we provide sort of the learning application around um, micro-learning and rapid reinforcement. And what that really is is that once you've done your class session or whatever else is in your TAT or tutorial or homework sessions, students should actually be able to have a highly interactive experience on a mobile app or computer where it's pushing them questions on everything that they learned that day. And um, with um, microlearning and rap rapid reinforcement, you're also tracking the stuff that they get wrong, the stuff they get right, giving them corrective feedback, and giving an opportunity to try again, um, seeing which ones, by virtue of which ones they get wrong and right, what level they're at, so you increase or decrease the complexity of the questions so that they can start at a point where they're getting stuff right. Um, and there's a lot of research in the US that's shown that that kind of rapid reinforcement is actually the most cost-effective way to improve learning outcomes. And one of the key reasons they said is that um, is because learners feel empowered to do learning by themselves. They're not waiting for a teacher to mark a test script and come back to them. They feel that they ultimately start getting better. So even if they initially get stuff wrong, um, by the virtue of the fact that they can keep trying um, in their own sort of safe space of that computer and get progressively better, they now start having positive um, feelings about this subject because they actually have an opportunity to get better. So this still speaks to the how of learning. It's not that um, they didn't get the maths content. It's did you position the how of the learning that gave them that out of comfort zone experience that actually allowed them <clears throat> to get something right that they didn't think they would get right and continuously build on those positive sentiments so that they can get going and move further. Um, so this is why I don't think you can solve it without still going back to that how of learning. And I'm saying that the general teacher isn't taught in those principles. They've only been taught, if they have, what the math sum is, um, but gen definitely not on the how of how you would cultivate a positive learning experience that would build on concurrently. And then just one other thing, that, sure. and the why of learning, mm -hmm. you know, where, where does that sort of fit in? Because it's, yeah. Oh, maybe that can be my next talk topic. Um, I don't... <laughs> um, huh. I don't have an answer for you, but I'll think about it. Yeah. <laughs> right, I think we'll end there. Thank you very much, Rapalang, for that. Sure. I think it was really, really insightful. Really appreciate it. Uh, isn't that an interesting thought? We might be doing uh, practicing certificates via virtual reality. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, so just moving on to some of the um, kind of closing um, items. Uh, I know everybody has been really waiting to see what the outcome of the convention app competition has been. And these are the top prize winners, um, and you will 
Um, and I'll mention yes, who has sponsored some of the um, prizes as well. So the person with the most points for overall engagement on the app is Ryan Campbell Harris, of course. He wins. <laughs> well done, Ryan. You win a thousand rands in an old mutual money, uh, money account, which is fantastic. The person with the second most points for overall engagement in the app is Bonolo Belili, and she wins box, a box of wine by SA3, not box wine by SA3, box of wine by SA3. <laughs> and the person with the third most points for overall engagement is Lerato Kakudi, and she wins um, Carol Boy's Champagne Flutes, which was sponsored by Liberty. Congratulations. The person with the post or the status that received the most likes and comments wins a Bluetooth speaker, by Old, which is sponsored by Old Mutual, and that is Azwefili Rachifeti. Congratulations to you. And then the person with the picture posted that had the most likes or comments won a Bluetooth speaker by Old Mutual. So congratulations. And the prizes are all here on the side. So uh, you'll get them afterwards. So should we do they can come up now, actually. You can come up and get your prizes for your minute of fame. <laughs> okay. Well, while they're coming up, um, something else is that the next 30 participants on the leaderboard also get prizes for their engagement, and you will have received a message on the app, and you can collect your prize at the garderobe, uh, which is just a fancy word for the coat hanging place, before 6.30 p.m. Yeah, I think that's on the ground floor, on level zero. So, um, once again, thank you very much to the 2019 convention um, sponsors. The society is really grateful for the support from the convention sponsors. That's Alexander Forbes, Ernex, uh, Genry, and RGA, as well as Sandam, uh, who sponsored the um, Africa session. So thank you very much. And also many thanks to all of the exhibitors and the sponsors of also the Wi-Fi and the app, the relaxation stations, the coffee bars, and the char charging stations. Everyone is invited to link the link along the social outside the ballroom foyer straight afterwards. And I'd also just like to then uh, welcome uh, the past president who would also like to say some final comments before we close off and see you in Cape Town next year. So thank you, Karaba. I think. Uh, the first final comment that I would like to make is uh, one that um, I guess we make every year, which is a big vote of thanks to the organizing committee who have put the convention together. So to Marseille, I don't know, Marseille, are you in the room? Yes. Thank you very much. She's <laughs> at the back there. Let's give her and her team a round of applause. For those of you who don't know, this is Marseille's first year as the, as the coordinator of the, of the organizing committee, and I think she's done an outstanding job. So well done to her, to the organizing committee, to uh, African Agenda, who keep things on the, on the go. So thank you to all of them. And a very special thank you to Karabo for being <laughs> our uh, MC and doing once again an, an, an excellent and outstanding job of that. Oh, and we you. have a little th something for you, Karabo, as well. So with that, I declare the 2019 Actual Society Convention closed. 
There is the Linger Longer event outside for those of you who want to try and avoid the, the traffic. Um, and then uh, see you in Cape Town next year. Thank you very much. <laughs>